This week on Hacker in the Fed, Hector and I talk about fake Google advertisements, law firms are under attack from cyber criminals, and the White House announces a new national cybersecurity strategy. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are you doing this week? Oh, I'm doing great, my friends. Uh, just been a little busy, as you can imagine, with all the things going on in the cyber world. What about yourself? Eh, busy, but we say that every week. If it was slow, would we tell each other that we were slow? I mean, I, I, I would be much happier. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind doing like one good, solid pen test a week. But man, sometimes it's, uh, it's I'm overloaded. Keeps you out of trouble, at least. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The first story I want to start off this week, Hector, is uh, about Google fake ads. And uh, that probably is going to disappoint you because I am seeing more and more problems coming from fake Google advertisements than I am insider threats. And I know you think 2023 is the year of the insider threat, but man, Google fake ads is dominating the first two months of the year. <laughs> well, I'm still crossing my fingers for that to be uh, more of a reality, but not really. No, I'm joking. But yes, Google ads have been um, kind of a staple in InfoSec or CyberSec news over the last couple months. But this story is a little bit different, right? The, the other stories that we've seen that we've been accustomed to over the last several years has been with malvertisements where, you know, you do a search on Google and then you get an a ad for a site you think you're looking for. You click on it and it's a phishing page, but not this one. This was a bit different, right? Yeah, this was more of a, a middleman or a, an attacker in the middle type thing. If you, if it even is, and you know, we'll get to the end of it. Not to get you know too far up. We don't know. Is this a crime? So, but let's explain what, what was going on. So, we have a guy who Googled his local Thai restaurant. I guess he wanted to get some food and he was hungry, uh, and so he Googled it. Um, the top result was a fake ad. It wasn't until the third result was the real one. But he clicked on the top one, thinking it was the real one. And placed his orders, and lo and behold, he figured, found out that really there was a, a, a somebody else who he put his order into, gave him a credit card, uh, and then they called the restaurant and put the order in for him. Isn't that insane? Like, I don't even know how to think about this one. Yeah, I mean, so so they're answering the phone is like pretending to be the restaurant, and really, then they're just taking it and they're then they're marking it up fifteen percent. They're taking a cut. <laughs> so if they, this guy was buying some, you know, Thai noodle dish for ten dollars, they were charging him, you know, a, you know, what is it, eleven fifty? Kind of a crazy thing. Kind of like, is, is this just a space? Are people? You know, is this a legit thing? What do, what do you feel? Do you feel like uh, this is a, a real marketing ploy or is this a crime? 
I, I guess let's look at a couple things here. So the pretender or the man in the middle here, the attacker in the middle, however you want to call it, um, these guys not only put up a fake ad, but they also bought, bought a website and domain indicating that their website was legitimate. They even registered like social media accounts, I believe, if, if I remember clearly here. They created social media accounts pretending to be that other business um, for the sole purpose of getting access to the customer base and then, of course, adding that 50% markup. That's interesting to me. I, I would say that if there's like, I mean, is that like trademark issues? Is it copyright issues? I mean, this, this is a very weird one. But there's one thing I also want to point out, Chris. I've seen this before, not with Google Ads, but with like the, uh, what is it, the white pages or yellow pages? The one where you can find businesses. Which one is that one? Yellow that was pages, yellow right? pages, yeah. Yeah. Now, now well, we're getting old school on that. Some of our listeners don't know what the hell we're talking about. So. <laughs> Back in the day, the telephone company would send out these big, thick books, uh, and there'd be a white pages. And the white pages was a list is everyone's registered phone number, name, and address. And it was done by the alphabetical order of your last name. Uh, but then even thicker was a yellow pages. Uh, and in that book, they listed all the businesses. So if you want to look up, you know, uh, restaurants, I'd look under R, and then you can look under the different types of restaurants. So I never thought I'd have to explain what the hell a white pages and yellow pages are. But <laughs> I, I think we're to that point in the world. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember reading about a story a very long time ago where there was a company in, uh, uh, I forgot where exactly. I'm not sure if it was New York or, or somewhere around. Might have been California. And what they did was they would create ads for flowers. And it was like ABC flowers. And so they, because it's alphabetical order, they were like at the top spots for or like A1 flowers. There you go. Something like that. And then so what people would do is they would open up the yellow pages, look up flowers. I've got to get my wife some flowers or something. And they'll, they'll just call the first number they see, which was this fake company. What they would do is once they would receive your order and make an order with another flower shop local. Local, local to the address that you're calling for, and then make the order for you and add a markup to that. So this but is how, this, would they, this how is, would they give you pricing at the beginning? How would they know like what your order was going to cost? Like, are they just taking the risk? Well, they probably had a sell sheet, you know, like hey, you need a dozen roses. I got you. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to charge you ninety dollars or whatever it was, and uh, and maybe the local florist would charge forty five. Now all of a sudden they're, they're adding some ridiculous markup to that. Well, I mean, it, your analogy is exactly perfect to it because it's going to put, Google's going to put the results if you, you know, put in Hector's Thai restaurant, um, you know, Hector's Thai restaurant sponsored ad is going to be the one at the top, you know, and, and that might not necessarily be that the Hector's Thai restaurant we're looking for. That's exactly right. So now I'll, let me ask you, from the perspective of uh, a former law enforcement officer, someone that deals with cases even now, is this a crime? If I took this to the U.S. Attorney's Office, they would probably say it doesn't smell right. But what the hell are we going to charge them with? What what's the what's the problem here? I mean, yeah, maybe there's some like copyright infringements or, or something along those lines, which certainly was not my forte. I don't I don't know all the rules behind that. Um, but just looking at it, it, it doesn't pass the sniff test. No, it doesn't. But then if you start to create laws around something like this then you would probably also affect the drop shipping industry, which is a whole other cluster on its own. And yeah, I mean, I, I, this is a weird story, folks. For, for, for the people in the audience that know more about these kind of stories, please let us know. Because I found it fascinating. Chris, obviously, I, I'm sure you find it fascinating as well. Now, what does the, the, the victim do from here? 
Who's the victim? Is it the restaurant or is it the guy who ordered the food? That's a great question. It seems like both. It seems like they're both victims to this uh, to this issue. I, I definitely don't, as a, an owner of Hector's Thai restaurant, I wouldn't be happy about it. I wouldn't be happy that someone's, you know, doing very little work, stealing my name, and then also putting on top of it, you know, that 15%. Because maybe, maybe they get the order and the client's like, eh, it's not worth, you know, that much money. It's not worth the eleven fifty. I probably would have paid ten bucks for it. But then again, maybe the Thai restaurant's get getting more business because of the ad. Wait, wait, you bring up a good point. What if this is like a weird double-edged sword scenario, right? Where the the restaurant is not happy, the client, the the victim, the the the, the person that they try to make the order is not happy. But in a weird way, these ads are amplifying the search results for this brand and thus bringing in more traffic and more business to the to the restaurant. I mean, it is true. So in this this specific story, he knew the name of the place that was right around the corner. So what if this guy just put in Thai restaurant and another Thai restaurant who didn't have an ad come up would have normally come up. But this time the fake ad came up. Maybe it's good business. <laughs> You know what? I think you might have accidentally sparked a whole new industry within this audience. Interesting story. I would, you know, I would love to hear more. Um, you know, as we kind of get as some of this stuff happens more and more, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll see more of it as we move forward. So I will tell you, I, w- I think I talked about it on the last episode that I did a case about. Uh, it's called like Rove Digital. It was a, an Estonian company that was using a DNS or domain name, name server the uh, changer. Um, so they were changing passing out in a codex in a, in a porn site, this DNS changer that would, you know, change where you wanted to go, but they were doing it and it was really focusing on ads, advertisements and things. Um, so you were supposed to see one advertisement, but that would through their DNS changer, they were able to show other advertisements. We got a little ways into the investigation and we found out that Google was making ads twice. They paid twice for the same ads. I don't think it was a crime uh, and they helped us with the case, but it was financially advantageous for them to not help us, to let that keep going, um, getting paid <laughs> twice for a game. But based on this this case in this article, Amex, who's seeing the charges, specifically in this case, Google, who is posting the ads, and uh, Wix, the, the company that was po- putting up the, uh, the fake website for the advertiser or the fake advertiser, they should be able to all spot this. They should be able to all see that this is a fake business. You know, any one of them should be understand, be able to understand that. They should, but imagine the volume of traffic that all of these providers are dealing with on a day to, day by day. How do you start to differentiate? You know, what ad belongs to what business, and and what charges are supposed to go where? When you have a lot of companies that kind of use the same naming conventions, you know, it, it's it becomes difficult. I can imagine. Well, I don't know. Amex should be able to see that you're doing, you're putting in an order in a different name uh, that doesn't match the credit card. Maybe, maybe not. Google should certainly do diligence, due diligence on which clients they're taking on to, to post these ads. Um, now, I probably have no idea what the scale is we're talking about here, but it just doesn't seem right. I, again, I don't think I don't think this is a place for law enforcement to step in here. I really think of all of them, I think Google's going to be the one that has to step up and clean up their ad space and. The only thing that's going to come about that is because of uh, like people talking about it or, or them getting a lot of uh, you know flack from from people uh, in you know the malvertisement space and this space, whatever we're going to call this this fake uh, eatery made in the middle attack. 
Sure. Well, even if even if the original restaurant, the restaurant that's the that's supposed to the destination, uh, even if they they made this a civil matter, then they would have to go to court and prove that the the man in the middle advertiser here is costing them some sort of money or is affecting their brand in some way. Right. Yeah. What did they lose? They uh, they got paid for at the, at their rate. You know, it's not like they they're taking a discount. I mean, they're 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 still getting the ten dollars for the dish. <laughs> That's right. That is so right. Well, I mean, you know what? I guess I leave it to the audience then, because this is this is one of those weird stories that you know it's like, well, who's 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 in the wrong? Obviously, the man in the middle here. Um, but you know, are there any victims? I think I think that's the, that's the question. And I think this story will go will evolve over time. And I think we'll keep track of it and see what happens. Sounds good. In today's internet age, people's personal information is being shared online at the click of a button without their consent. And it happens all the time. But you can tackle this problem thanks to Delete Me. And I'm excited to be partnering with them. And I'm also a client. So that goes, I hope that goes a long way. When I used to Google myself, I used to find hundreds of detailed profiles that shared either my old cell phone numbers, addresses, emails, family members, or even financial records all of which can be used to target me or um, people within my circle. All out there and easily accessible to anyone. And that information can lead to those annoying robocalls and scam emails. Not to mention identity theft and fraud. And in extreme cases, stalking, harassment, intimidation, or assault. And trust me, I've had plenty of death threats on my, uh, on my end. At first, I tried to remove it all myself, which you can do. But after at least 10 hours, I signed up for Delete Me and it was so easy. Their software team of experts will not just find and remove your personal information from hundreds of data broker websites, but they'll continuously scan for new data that shows up and gets that removed as well. On average, Delete Me finds and removes over 2,000 pieces of data for a customer in their first two years, and to date, they've removed over 35 million pieces of data for their customers. That's amazing. So, if you want to get your personal information removed from search results on the web, Check out joindeleteme.com slash fed and use the code fed20. Again, joindeleteme.com slash fed and use the code fed20. When do you have insights into your compliance, security, and risk postures? It's a great question. If it's right before an audit, you're on the same boat as many other organizations. With Drata, G2's highest rated cloud compliance software, you'll have continuous monitoring and visibility into your risk, security controls, and audit readiness for standards like SOC 2, ISO 2701, GDPR, HIPAA, and more. Drata can streamline compliance for over 14 frameworks and even automate the custom frameworks and controls you create to meet your organization's unique security needs. With more than 75 native integrations and a risk management solution, you'll have a tool that will scale with you. Countless security professionals from companies like Notion, Lemonade, and Bamboo HR have shared how crucial it has been to have Drata as their trusted compliance partner. Now, here's where it gets cool, guys. Listeners of Hacker and the Fed can get 10% off Drata and waived implementation fees at drata.com slash partner slash hacker dash fed. Again, drata.com slash partner slash hacker dash fed.
Welcome back to the show. Hector, the next thing we're looking at is cyber criminals targeting law firms uh, with two different types of malware. Uh, we have a lot of listeners out there that work at law firms, a lot of lawyers attached to Hacker and the Fed. The report came out that six different law firms were targeted in January and February of this year um, for loading uh, malware strains onto their systems. Uh, did you read about this? Yeah, absolutely. I've always been fascinated when it comes to law firms, because um, I have a lot of friends in uh, that are lawyers, and they always tell me about these weird emails they get. And I always find it fascinating, in the event a lawyer is compromised, like, how bad is it? You know, like, what's the consequences of that? I could imagine dire. So, I mean, law firms are being targeted all the time because, you know, uh, I heard, you know, people talk about it in the past that, you know, why hack into one company when I can hack into a law firm and have access to all the information for a hundred different companies? So you know, hackers know that that law firms are are rich with information. Um, you know, and in the culture in law firms is that lawyers need that information at their fingertips. They need to be going into court or answering client information or doing things very fast. They need the information, you know, so maybe that information is a little looser because, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, the, uh, if you need it now, it's got to be put out there fast, uh, whether it's on devices. Uh, and so sometimes security is, you know, a little lax here. And uh, it seems like cyber criminals are using this, uh, you know, in order to, to get that information. Uh, these two new uh, JavaScript malwares, uh, that are downloading payloads, secondary payloads on their machines. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the one thing that I'll say about this is that, I mean, this is not new, right? I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say that um, uh, this is something that's, that's like kind of like a re- revelation, okay? Um, we've seen these kind of attacks happen uh, over the last, I don't know, 10 plus years Will where you'll see a search engine optimization, malicious advertisements, you know, or or even like um, there's a there's a there's a phrase for it. Essentially, when it's you know when you have an advertisement network or an ad that's spread across a, a vast, um, you know, uh, uh, that has a vast coverage of different targets, then you would have the threat actors focus on a very specific demographic, right? So we've seen this kind of stuff in the past. What's interesting is that we're seeing some of these cyber criminals or, or criminals in general targeting law firms. And, you know, you brought up a very good point earlier. Why would I need to attack a specific target when I could just compromise their attorneys and more than likely get access to information that I probably won't get access to if I compromise, let's say, an external server? You're getting access to contracts, intellectual property, upcoming meetings. You know, if you were a bad actor and your purpose was to extract or exfiltrate IP or intellectual property, law firms is definitely where to go. But also there's there's a flip side to that. I would also add that attackers could also focus on hitting law firms for the purpose of identifying potentially bad news that they could leverage in the stock market as well. Yeah, yeah. The financially motivated hackers are, are definitely using this leverage uh, to try to get you know either deals that are coming up, uh, you know, to to try to buy one side that's uh, you know a stock that's going to go way up, or using it as uh, ransom. Uh, they're they're holding people hostages for you know maybe a company admits their bad behavior to their lawyer on that information sitting there. Various different things why people want access to that information. But yeah, the attack vector is a thing called waterholing. It's kind of a, an attack strategy where they're uh, they're kind of observing websites that certain organizations often go to. Um, there's probably legal sites out there that lawyers go to on a daily basis, and they're sort of faking those or compromising those sites. 
uh, in order to get, you know, the most number of lawyers they could possibly get into. Yeah, that's exactly the word I was thinking about. And my brain was like, nah, not, not today. I knew um, it was there. I knew you had it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that, that is such a great point. And so now the problem with this is that since it is not a direct target or a, a targeted attack, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with remediating or mitigating something like this? And that's that's where it becomes difficult. That's where having a mature security program where you've done the risk assessments and you're you know you're continuously doing validation of your controls, your technical controls rather, um, you know, it helps you mitigate something like this. But it is difficult to deal with it directly since it is not a direct attack, right? Yeah, it was just interesting to me. I mean, again, we have a lot of, of you know law firms out there that listen to the show. You know, the article was you know they should keep this in mind and you know put their defenses up properly. Uh, that email was the primary infection rate for for against law firms since yeah, well, prior to two thousand twenty one. Since twenty twenty one to twenty three, we're now seeing browser based attacks. Uh, that's that's really on the rise, and it's going. You know, we've kind of got the email attacks. People have understood the phishing. You know, we've educated the law firms and the lawyers to not click on those links. But now their browser attacks are going way up. You know, and we're seeing these uh, malicious these droppers come on there. Uh, Google Ads, they're saying, is you know again uh, a story we talked about earlier. Um, they ads are targeting law- lawyers and services lawyers use. Uh, and they're putting the malicious uh, links in the Google ads and, and they're falling prey to it. Fun times indeed. But I, the one thing I'll, I'll tell folks, especially in the audience, especially those that are lawyers, I understand. I get it. You guys are dealing with Word documents and PDFs, which uh, are heavily favored by the threat actors for various reasons of ease of use, ease of exploitation. Um, you know, it, It's a common vector in social engineering attacks. And this is where it becomes very important for, you know, your organization to have controls in place to kind of mitigate some of this stuff. You know, it also brings us to the question of like risk assessments. You, you want to analyze the potential risk of downloading executables or rather not even executables, um, but binary format documents like PDFs, for example, from the Internet or from email uh, sources that you do not trust. You got to definitely scrutinize these emails as they come in. Now, there's some technologies out there that kind of help you determine whether or not, you know, the file that you're downloading may be malicious. Um, a good example, if you're using something like an endpoint protection, endpoint detection, uh, some of these tools use things like behavior analytics and profiling um, to kind of determine and or, and or identify whether the document you downloaded that seems legitimate uh, may indeed be malicious, uh, depending on what it does once you open the Word document itself. But I would say worst case scenario, you download a document from a website you think you trust, or you get an email from a client that you think you trust, and you feel kind of iffy about the attachment. If you have to open the attachment for whatever reason, and you start getting warning messages from Microsoft Word or Adobe Reader that says, hey, would you like to enable macros or enable X, Y, and Z feature in order for the content to be viewed? You might as well just like say no, and uh, <laughs> might as well. You should definitely say no. <laughs> you should. <laughs> you should definitely say no. And, there, and there's kind of there's there's cheap ways around that. I mean, you could upload a PDF to like Google Drive and read the PDF to Google Drive. It's not going to exploit 
your browser, unless the attackers identify uh, potential payloads that could execute from your browser to Google Drive, right? I mean, there's there's ways around it. We could always, you know, brainstorm ideas as we kind of move forward, Chris, and other stories. Yeah, I definitely think putting it into Google Drive is more for a sophisticated user. Um, you know, that's not an average. I'm not telling Mom Tarbell to do that because you know I don't know what's going to happen. In theory, I like the way it works, but you never know what else is in that payload and what else is stored in that Google Drive, uh, which then could be further compromised. Um, so I, I don't know if it's the best approach. Definitely a sophisticated user could use that approach. Oh, yeah. I completely agree. <laughs> so, so Hector, we talked about a story a couple of weeks ago about how Texas has banned the use of TikTok on uh, devices and on networks uh, that are owned by the state of Texas. Well, it's kind of been turned around again now. And now Russia, the Federal Service for Supervision of Communication, Information Technology, and Mass Communications, for Russia has now banned the following applications. Uh, Discord, Microsoft Teams, Skype for Business, Snapchat, Telegram, Threema, Viber, WhatsApp, and WeChat. Ooh, well, I'm surprised like Signal and other apps are not there. And I, I, I was surprised to see Threema. I haven't used Threema in like forever. So uh, interesting uh, list of apps here, guys. Now, as you know, we discussed this a couple weeks ago. I, I'm in total agreement with the the government here, uh, federal and states, blocking these apps or barring these apps from being used on official devices. Uh, I think that's a smart move. The one thing you don't want to do is potentially compromise your corporate network or the agency network because you know you want to you want to play a game or speak to your friends on a Discord or similar, right? So the, it seems like the Russian Federation felt the same. And I'm not sure if this is a tit-for-tat situation because TikTok is not from Russia, but it seems like the the Russian Federation has found that uh, these apps may expand their attack service a bit too much for their liking. Well, I don't know if it's for the attack vector uh, criteria or not. So let me read you what why they put out in their official release on why you can't use it. Um, information systems and computer programs owned by foreign persons that are intended and used for the exchange of message exclusively between their users in which the sender determines the recipient of the messages and does not provide the placement of publicly available information on the internet by internet users. Now that's a translation from there. So I, you know, I, I obviously don't read Russian. I'm not that smart. So maybe there's something, uh, you know, missaid there uh, but it seems to be that it's not so much about attack vectors but the information's not publicly available ah okay so that might make more sense so uh so assuming that discord would give uh the russian federation backdoor access to the app then maybe discord wouldn't be on that list is that what you would take away from this that's what that's what I'm getting at. But again, I don't. Why isn't Signal on here? Which throws you know, uh, you know that that's the big one for me. Of uh oh, what what? Oh, do you think Russia has a backdoor to Signal? <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> Oops! <laughs> oh, you wanted my opinion. There you go. <laughs> no, I, I do not think Signal is compromised. But uh, no, no, me neither. I was kidding. But that's a great point, though. Like they have three money here, which is a precursor to Signal. If I got the timeline right. But Signal's not here. So it makes you wonder, like, what what is it that they're willing to accept and not? I know Discord, in terms of security, man, I'm surprised that they have concerns regarding Discord. Because I've, I've played with enough Discord API endpoints to know that you can find a lot of data 
uh, from those apps as they're kind of going back and forth between uh, Discord servers and, and your client. Microsoft Teams and Skype for Business, I, I can understand that one, right? Those, uh, because you would assume that Microsoft has given the, the United States government some sort of access to something, even, even if that's not the case. But you, you could make that assumption uh, if you're a foreign government. But yeah, no, interesting stuff. I, I definitely see that that maybe the Russians would like to see some communications or some sort of metadata at least, um, and they're they're not getting it from these apps. Who knows, right? Yeah, we'll keep an eye on this story and see what changes and see if people uh, find workarounds or if the list expands or what's going to happen. But but that law went into effect on March first, and so we'll see what what comes comes from it. Cool. All right. I think one of the biggest stories this week, Hector, that came out is this uh, this fact sheet from the uh, Biden-Harris administration who, where they announced their, their national <laughs> cybersecurity strategy. Did you read this thing? Yeah, I read most of it, uh, fortunately and unfortunately. Uh, but I definitely went through a lot of it. I'm sure you have as well. It's long. Yeah, I, I read it. I've, I've read it a couple times, to be honest with you, because some parts I don't understand. Some parts I think are pretty good. Uh, it's sort of a mixed review for me. Yeah, I mean, there's I, I so I, I'll be the uh, I'll be the the ambassador for InfoSec Twitter for a moment here. If I saw some heavy debates on this 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 strategy, uh, on topics and the subtopics uh, therein, some folks had uh, some concerns about language here. Things like the word you know values and you know what value are we talking about? Whose values are we talking about? And then there's there's certain things in here that kind of seem redundant and or, you know, there may be a lot of uh, use of of like marketing phrases here. You know, we see the word resilient used a thousand times in this document. And I'm exaggerating, by the way, audience, but we see the word resilience here a lot. There's no context to what resilient is. I mean, as cybersecurity professionals or professionals in the industry, we kind of know what that is. But are we sure that the, the White House knows what that means? Then you have other things in here that uh, seem like they, sh- they probably would be good ideas. For example, putting responsibility also from uh, – t- or, or maybe taking some responsibility away from individuals and small businesses and local governments and putting them onto organizations that are most capable. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, a, a tier one ISP is going to take responsibility over the security of devices that, that are connected to them, those networks? And do we want that to happen? So I read some things about that. And, I, and so a lot of people's take, uh, some 50%, I'll, I'll agree with you, 50% of people's take on this one is that they want to put it over onto like the software engineers or the people designing software, uh, that they're not embedding security or having security thoughts uh, when, they're, when they create these, uh, these pieces of software. Yeah, and that, that introduces the idea of like, Having good security hygiene where you're developing software and then, of course, selling it to the, to the general audience and then or the consumers. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. We talk about that all the time. Security hygiene for any organization is a major thing. You know, when we're looking at IoT devices that are being sold from China, for example, and they're coming, they're coming here laden with backdoor accounts and uh, hidden services. That's a major problem. Two things. I mean, two things you just said there. I mean, they're, they're trying to say that they, they, we should take, if, if an individual, a small business, or a local government is the victim of a cyber attack, and we can put that on to a faulty piece of software or a beta version that came out and shouldn't be out there and uh, it, it wasn't didn't have security baked into it, then that per, that organization uh, that wrote that software might be responsible for that attack. It might be held responsible. 
Yeah, which which might be a great thing. And if I were to be, if I were to play devil's advocate, then it, you know I could also argue that it could hurt innovation, right? There's so many. I definitely think it's going to hurt innovation. That's my big concern. Well, that, that's the big argument. That's the argument that I saw. Um, and there's some, uh, you know, listen, folks. I usually don't like promote specific Twitter accounts, but like uh, uh, Robert Graham uh, or Erotic Sec on Twitter, you know, his, his takes were fantastic on this. And not only him, there were a couple folks here that, you know, really broke down this document into it could hurt innovation. It could open the doors for more spying in the future, depending on what it means by moving responsibility from individuals over to corporations. Like there's there's a lot of language problems with this document that folks are concerned about. And like you said, because on the flip side of this, I'm seeing some really good messaging around this uh, strategy report. So I was a little surprised on part of it is is they called they blatantly called out the People's Republic of China. Uh, it says uh, you know China now presents the broadest, most active, and most persistent threat to both government and private sector networks. I, I didn't expect you know the U.S. government to call out China in a very public document so blatantly. Yeah, uh, but here's the thing too: like if you if you pay attention to, to like Chinese politics and you look at some of the stuff that they're coming out with, they 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 kind of do the same with us. Now, I don't agree for t- with, with the titter tat concept. Like, I'm not, you know, we're, we're all adults here, but you know, we've seen we've seen some great reports. Uh, I say great because I, you know, I love you know reading through some of like the, the data breach reports and and even like threat intel reports. And I remember it was not that long ago that China came out with a, uh, like a like a threat intel report that was scathing of the United States government even implicating uh, the United States government in uh, various operations across China or against the Chinese government or educational or academic institutions. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I am surprised as well that, that they were kind of highlighted here. But then again, like, you know, what, what's the purpose of that? Is it to is it to skew public opinion and, and, and kind of push this narrative forward? Is this something that, that makes that uh, – I, I guess I'll turn it back to you. If you were putting together a document like this, whether it's for a client or uh, the U.S. government, would you highlight a potential uh, actor? Yeah, I mean, you always want if you if you're like specifically you're dealing with a client, and I guess you know this this is the the president of the United States or you know the 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 federal government, you know, and the client is the U.S. citizens. I guess yeah, you you call out and see what the biggest threat is, and so you put your resources in the right positions for the proper defense. So even though you were surprised that uh, that this document kind of highlighted China, you you kind of understand it. I understand it, but I, I don't. The, the, from a political standpoint, from a cybersecurity standpoint, it's great. From a political standpoint, it's that part I, I didn't expect it. Let me just say that it was a surprise. Oh yeah. Um, I saw that part of the document talks about develop. So a lot of the Internet of the Things that we talked about, they're created with no security whatsoever, and and China is a big source of a lot of those. You know, the low cost Internet of Things. Part of this plan was to develop a system of labeling the Internet of Things, the the how you know how much security or how much danger it could put in. Um, I mean, the first thing I thought of is now when I buy you know a, a thermostat, it's going to have a warning on the side of it, like like a pack of cigarettes. That hey, putting this on your home network, you could get pwned. <laughs> I, I'm 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 kind of iffy with warning labels, you know. Like uh, I get I get the the point behind them, but how often do people actually like read and and, and kind of follow through with the warnings? Never. You know what I mean? Never. So I, I hope that's not what this is going to end up with, right? I hope it's not a situation where you buy a, a, a router and there's a warning message and that's it. There's no 
there's no assurance that you know the 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 manufacturer or the vendor in question has done or taken some some role in in uh, implementing security measures into their device, right? Yeah, we're all paying you know eighty nine cents more for that router uh, because the company has to put this warning on the outside, or we're paying you know a hundred dollars more because uh, they pass some sort of uh, BS regulation and don't have to put the warning on the outside. Sounds like a lot of crap to me, man. <laughs> so, you know, when I when I first started reading this, and by the way, I want to give uh, I want to let people know, like I think that's fascinating that Biden and the White House and the rest of his team, right? So, you know, we we know Biden didn't sit down and write this, but we know that his team. Wait, how do you know that? Well, uh, listen, I, I, I'm making an assumption, and oh, you know what? Right. More likely, I'm wrong. But hey, I like being wrong sometimes. I like the fact that this White House team and the team that helped develop this strategy report just didn't completely scratch off what Trump and his team did previously. I I remember how excited folks were in general that the previous administration came out with some sort of cyber strategy, cybersecurity strategy, because for a while it was pretty quiet. I mean, big shout out to Obama for the good things he did do, but cyber seemed kind of like a low priority for that team. So when Trump came out with his strategy, cool. The fact that Biden worked off of that strategy, great. I like to see that. Because it's one thing that I want the audience to know, that when it comes to cybersecurity, it's agnostic. It's not a red or blue thing. It's not a conservative or liberal thing. This is something that we could all work together because we have a common interest. Not only the national security uh, of this country um, and our allies, but as well as our individual and personal security. So, yeah, we could definitely work on this together. I just kind of wanted to make that point, Chris, even though I know we try to avoid politics. uh, but it was good to see that for sure. I mean, another surprise for me in this whole thing is the the the, the, the ramping up of using Department of Defense technologies and or personnel to add to the National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force. So that's sort of like all the federal agencies that come together and investigate cybercrime. Um, really, it, it, it's saying that the both the intelligence community and the Department of Defense are going to add to this and bring their full range of uh, authorities together to disrupt these, you know, cyber campaigns. It's, it's, you know, if uh, if this really comes through true, you know, it's going to really bolster the the NCI JTF. Ah, that's a great point. And this one last thing I'll, I'll kind of point out, and it's to the audience, to my friends, Theodora, if you're listening, if any of you are attorneys and would love to read through this document, there's one question I would have for you. Does any of this open the potential for hackback, the concept of hacking back? I've read through this, Chris. I didn't really pick up on that, but I know that, that that's been a strategy that has been discussed in the past. And I, I'm not sure if anywhere in this document, even if it's one line, that kind of opens that door. So if any of your attorneys in the, in the, in the audience, if you could uh, reach out to us, let us know. That'd be great. I certainly didn't read about it when I read this through it twice, but now I didn't have that mindset. So now I got to read through it a third time. Damn you, Hector. Uh, and see if I can pick <laughs> out things like that. Not that I'm an attorney, but I also have no life, so I'll read it a third time. My apologies. And, and again, we'll add the link in our description. So we'll we'll have a link to both the sort of the one-page sheet about it uh, and then the full document. We'll put them both in the description. So very interesting to see what comes out of it. And I'm glad the, you know, I'm glad to see the federal government is putting this much effort behind uh, cybersecurity. That's awesome. Yeah. Speaking of federal government and, you know, the federal task force and that sort of thing, there's another article that came out, Hector. The, the U.S. Marshals suffered a major security breach uh, that compromised sensitive information. We don't have a lot on this story. Um, we're just kind of letting it out there because I think we're going to talk about this as it comes out like the last pass case. 
you know, I think it's it's going to come out more. But did you read about this one? Absolutely. It was, this was a bit of a big story. There's only so much news I could read. But I don't remember the last time I heard of the, the U.S. Marshals being compromised. This is obviously not a first. Definitely not. But it was interesting to see that they, they kind of let out the, that information that they, they were dealing with a ransomware and a data exfiltration event. It seems like it affected a standalone system, but I guess, you know, we'll find out more as, as more details come out. Yeah, so we're aware that, you know, one part of the Marshall Service is what they do is called the WITSEC or Witness Security Program. So if someone goes into, uh, I think Sammy the Bull, uh, we've talked about him before. I think he went to WITSEC, uh, probably not there anymore because it's so out there publicly. Uh, but witnesses are, are secured. They're saying that none of that information was compromised, which is good. Uh, I hope that we don't hear more information coming out in the near future of that stuff going. But, you know, I've worked with the marshals quite a bit when I was in the FBI. Uh, great guys, guys and gals. Um, I had a couple friends over there that I worked with all the time. They did a lot of security for the judges. Um, and so whenever a cyber case would come up, you know, the judges that worked those cases, including your judge, Hector, uh, we get a lot of threats. Um, and so yeah. I would work with them uh, on trying to mitigate some of that and kind of help them with it. So, but a lot, lot of good people over the U.S. Marshal Service and uh, hope that this isn't too bad a breach. Yeah, same here. I mean, I, I know they have a very difficult job as it is, and they're they're ha- they're kind of dealing with a portion or part of of you know that that whole legal ecosystem that that is very difficult to deal with. I mean, t- imagine imagine you're you're in charge of of handling Witsec, and there's a breach, and that information is leaked. Oh man, I can imagine how devastating that must be for the organization, but everybody involved. That's scary. So the next story you sent over to me, I took a look at, and I want to give a big shout out to, uh, uh, on Twitter, at Noel underscore tech. It's, uh, again, it's it's at no, N-O, big capital L, underscore tech. Noel tech found a remote execution uh, exploit in .NET uh, and did the right thing and sent it over to Microsoft, and Microsoft rewarded them with $1,000. Can you imagine this sector? Wow, look at that. A thousand bucks. You, you already know that this this uh, had me upset because uh, you know for a fact, uh, and anybody that listens to this uh, podcast that also knows a little bit of the industry, security industry, knows that a remote command execution vulnerability goes for much more than that. And I'm sure that there's there's variables and there's nuances to, to this issue. Uh, I want to I want to give a big shout out to them as well for reporting the, the vulnerability. And then and participating in that bug bounty program. However, you know, come on, Microsoft, it would be nice. You know, you got to raise that up a little bit. Hector, can you explain the significance of a, a zero day in a remote code execution exploit? Yeah, I mean, if if an attacker has access to a vulnerability that's unknown, so that's a zero day, zero day since release um, or since whatever, you have access to a vulnerability that nobody can defend against. Okay, that's a, that's an issue. Now, if you weaponize that and you create an exploit for that, now you can automate the attack process. Now you can also exploit victims at will because there is no patch. There is no security updates. There's no mechanism to really deal with that problem because no other, you know, uh, the the vendors in this case, or even the, the tools that you use may not even know that this is even a thing. So hence, a zero-day remote command execution in any service. In this case, it was .NET, so there might be nuances to that. That is a major deal. And when you go to like websites like Serodium or the Zero Day Initiative, remote command execution vulnerabilities and the associated proof-of-concept exploits 
you know, depending on context, depending on the service, depending on how the exploitation is, is done, uh, could fetch anywhere between five to ten thousand at the minimum, all the way up to millions of dollars, millions plural. Um, so yeah, I was interested to see that this happened, and I'm curious as to Microsoft's perspective as to why such a low payout. Yeah, really interested. And, and again, we we talked about a story last week about people hiring on the dark net and offering you know good researchers positions that are involved in illegal websites or illegal activities. Um, really, really hope that you know some of the bigger companies on the white hat side of things like Microsoft start stepping up and, and paying these people what they deserve. Um, and it's not pushing people over to the, uh, to the dark markets or the zero day brokers, uh, you know, that, that sort of side of the house. Oh yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's always a debate when it comes down to bug bounty programs, right? The debate is if an organization, a vendor, a manufacturer, what have you, if they do not have a publicly accessible or publicly known vulnerability uh, bug bounty program or bug bounty program in general, then you, sh- as a researcher, if you put time into identifying or reverse engineering, uh, or reverse engineering their products and or identifying potential vulnerabilities, you should not really have an expectation of, of getting a bounty. Okay, that's that's part of the argument. But there's a flip side when you're dealing with a company that does have a bug bounty program, and they actually ask researchers, "Hey, please dedicate your time if you have the time to to kind of find vulnerabilities in our software." will definitely pay you according to the bug bounty rules. So this person here, the researcher, Noltech, did exactly that. They followed the rules. They communicated with Microsoft. They they they, they worked within the boundaries and scope of the uh, bug bounty program. Um, I think that for me, I was just taken aback by the fact that this is an RCE, remote command execution, and it, it just resulted in a grant. And uh, uh, something that you know, I hope the audience understands that it's not about the money. But the one thing we want to do is if you have good researchers, good people that are willing to work with you um, and they're working within the confines of your program, you want to be able to reward them so they come back. Because I'll tell you, the next time this person finds a remote command execution, they might go to the dark web and study for 20 grand. So something to think about. Yeah, we'll put a link in the description to uh, Noel underscore Tech's uh, Twitter feed and give him a follow. Uh, probably a good read, uh, good researcher. So congratulations on, on that find, big find. So the last story we're going to cover, Hector, is more just a thing for the audience to kind of realize and know that this new scam is out there. You sent it over. Um, but it's a, sort of an interesting concept. So hackers are uh, hackers, card carters, uh, ATM thieves really is what it is. They're putting glue in the ATM machines, uh, in the card readers where you slide your card in and pull it out so that your card reader doesn't work. And then there's sort of wait till the customer comes in line uh, and they stand in the back of the line and say, hey, give you the suggestion. Hey, if you just tap your card, um, you know, with a little chip on it that you can um, do your ATM, even if the card reader isn't working. Person thinks that's helpful. Thank you for helping me. What these people that don't know is that your session stays open until the customer closes it. So once you tap it, the session's open and you have to specially close it. You know, the guy who gave you the suggestion in the back of the line then just walks up and drains your bank account. Oh, yeah. I think it's a great story because it goes to show you that not every attack uh, these days, 2023, um, has to be sophisticated. This is not a sophisticated attack. It's very old school in nature. Okay. Um, 
you know, when you put in your card into the card reader, the ATM, depending on obviously which ATM you're using, it'll keep your card until you're done with your transaction and you press OK, I'm done. You log out, boom, you walk away. You get your card back. You have to wait until your card is released. In this, in this scenario, that's not the case. Since you're not putting a card into the device, into the ATM machine, all you're doing is tapping and authenticating or authorizing yourself as the uh, user of the card. Um, what you don't realize is that you have to manually log out before you move forward. Now, I don't know for a fact. I haven't tried this yet, Chris. I'm going to try it probably this weekend or this week. What, you're going to put glue into people's ATM machines? No. <laughs> no and then no. stand in line and suggest what? Hector. No, no, no. no Bad actor. No. <laughs> Definitely not. But I'm, I'm going to tap my card. I'm going to see what the ATM does. And I'm going to see if there's a timeout. It may make sense why these guys are like right behind the person and maybe like at the end of the line. Maybe they're waiting to try to cast the machine before it times out, assuming there is one. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's affected several folks. Um, and here's the bad part. Here's the worst part. So far, the banks are not giving back the money to the victims because they're saying it is an authorized transaction. And that's terrible. I'm sure that'll change eventually with Chase. Uh, but something to think about, folks. Yeah, you know, it's always interesting. I guess I didn't think, you know, having that token based in where your session only stays alive while your card's in the machine. Um, you know, that that's just a good security feature. You know, the tap is kind of uh, takes that out of it. But I'm sure based on my experience that these guys are doing this on starting on like Friday nights uh, when bank personnel aren't around. You know, that's, you know, eight most skimmers go in on the weekends and they set up their skimming operations uh, when there's a lot less, you know, employees near ATMs. So they're doing that. But, you know, they're really kind of, you know, getting to people's fears. Like, you know, when people are waiting in line, they feel a little anxious when people are behind them. Um, and so when someone suggests how to quick it, you know, I'm sure they're dipping their car. Their card's not working. And they're like, oh, just tap it. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry for making you waiting. You know, it's like kind of like you feel embarrassed when you're at a green light and someone has to honk for you to tell you to go. So they're opportunistic. Cyber criminals are opportunistic and kind of preying on some of these uh, things, uh, the human nature. So now that you know that this is a thing, you know that this is happening when you're tapping your card at ATMs at, uh, at these banks. Now you have to really think about, well, what happens if I tap my card at the gas tank? Is the same thing going to happen there? So yeah, so start to analyze, start to you know, kind of look at how you're using your cards and what services you're using. And you know, is your session over once you're done pumping your gas? Or is your session over once you get your money out? If not, then yeah, you have to make sure that you're logging out these accounts uh, before you move forward. I mean, the best advice I'll give you and this, I do this personally, you know, my, my wife gives me shit for it. Um, but any transaction on any of my cards over one penny, I get a text message, you know? So I'm going to see if someone else digging my cards or if, if someone's some sort of transaction that looks funny to me, you know, it's, I'm only going to get hit once, you know, at most, um, I'm only, you know, cause I'm going to shut the card down immediately if I don't recognize the charge. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. A great episode, Hector. I enjoyed speaking to you. Um, next week, uh, we have a special guest joining us, uh, Bill Gardner, the chair of the Cyber Forensics and Security at Marshall University. We're going to talk to Hector and I about uh, you know what the academic side of getting into cybersecurity. Uh, very interesting uh, talk we should have with Bill. Uh, looking forward to that. If you have any questions, uh, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. It's been a few episodes, Hector, since we went through the questions list. So I think after we have Bill on, I think we should do a questions episode. What do you think? 
I agree. I kind of I kind of like those episodes to be honest with you. They're my favorite too. So uh, we'll we'll definitely do that one. So new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Hector, thanks for the conversation. I enjoyed it today and look forward to the next one. Likewise, my friend. We'll talk soon. Cheers. All right. Cheers.